Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. Joe is filling in for Julie this week. Uh, you probably know Joe from Forward Thinking, our sister podcast and show brand. Uh, and we're talking about the eclipse. The eclipse. Yes, the power of the, eclipse. The nicotine gum. Oh, is, <laughs> wait, is that is the name it, of the, the No, wait, is it an, I think it might just be a regular gum. Oh, okay. Maybe available in nicotine flavor. I don't know. <laughs> no, uh, eclipses are a thing that uh, they are both sort of mundane in physical terms, yeah. but also quite stunning and terrifying and significant throughout the history of humanity. Yeah, significant to the observer. Yeah, because I, I just want to try to imagine, I, I know you can't really put yourself in this headspace, but just try to imagine what it would be like to sort of live in a pre-scientific time, maybe you're you're part of a you know a hunter-gatherer tribe somewhere in the world, and for the first time in your life, something very strange happens one day. The sky starts to go dark, and you see a black disc pass in front of the sun until there's just a ring of white fire, and the the, the it's dark in the middle of the daytime. You don't know what's going on or what's causing this. I have to imagine that it would be absolutely terrifying and and completely bizarre. Yeah, I mean the cycle of night and day. <laughs> you know, the one of the the, the guiding uh, factors of your life. I mean, really, the, the, the guiding factors for any organism. Yeah. I mean, some of the earliest uh, organisms were still based on recognizing when it was dark and when it was daylight. And suddenly, that seems to be thrown out the window by this random chaotic event. Yeah, well, I'd say upsetting the the div- clear division between night and day is like one of the most perverse things you could do to a biological organism. Uh, I mean, the sun, it's its the, the mother of all on Earth. When you think about it, all energy on Earth is solar energy, pretty much. All, all the energy we consume, you know, it, uh, all the food we eat is it, a few steps down the chain, but it's solar energy. Uh, it, and so it's just kind of amazing to imagine not knowing what's going on, but seeing that that mother of all life suddenly blotted out. And, of course, maybe not equally astounding, but also very strange and, and perhaps perverse and upsetting is the lunar eclipse. Uh, seeing something happen to the moon, which to you might have been some kind of god or have some other kind of magical significance, seeing it change colors or seeing a shadow pass in front of it. Um so, yeah, I think eclipses are going to be a really interesting thing to talk about. So you might have heard a couple of years ago uh, that the Mayan calendar predicted the end of the world. You remember this? I remember hearing a little about it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah there I, was I think one or two way news, too much uh, about it. Sources picked up on it. Oh, I got so sick of hearing about that. But it, uh, maybe it's just now been long enough that we can bring it up again without making people groan too mm-hmm. much. Uh, but it, it was supposed to end in December 2012. Well, not only did the world not end, but the Mayan calendar actually, this is funny, didn't predict the end of the world. Did you know this at the time? Um, I, I don't think I was that informed about it, but I, and then also I was just bombarded with that idea of you know Mayan apocalypse. Yeah. Uh, so around that time was basically the end of their long calendar cycle, which would reset afterwards. So it wasn't really a judgment day. It was more like their December 31st if yeah. they had a really, really, really long year. Yeah, it would be uh, like somebody looking back at our calendar system and thinking of 
the end of the year is the the end of uh, of an era, the end of an age, an apocalypse. Right, and so they didn't predict the end of the world there, but the Mayan astronomical calendar actually did make some interesting astronomical predictions. Uh, for example, there's a book called Astronomy in the Maya Codices uh, by Harvey and Victoria Bricker. So they discuss the ancient Maya. Mayan astronomical calendars, and, and they discuss them dating back to the 11th or 12th centuries CE, and they say that these ancient calendars that the Maya had predict the date of a solar eclipse that would have been visible in July of 1991 within about a day of accuracy. And it kind of makes you wonder why predicting an eclipse would be that important to them. I mean, it's not like it had any real, like, physical effects of much significance on Earth. You know, it mm-hmm. didn't, like, it wasn't that an eclipse would, like, destroy all their crops or something. So what did it mean? Well, it, I mean, a lot of it really comes down to, of course, just cosmology, your understanding of what you are as a people and what the, what the world is and then what the cosmos means, uh, as well as just basic Record keeping, basic uh, uh, observation of the movement of the spheres, and using this as a as a, as a way to divide out time. Uh, the ancient Maya believed in in recurring cycles of creation and destruction, and they believed that life was composed of eras lasting around uh, in modern years. It would be uh, around uh, fifty two hundred year periods. Uh, they believed in a flat, four-cornered Earth that was uh, has been described as being like that of a the, the back of a crocodile that's resting in the water. You know where that's just awesome. the, the back is emerging, and uh, you know there was uh, you know additional stuff about the four corners and the corresponding gods, and uh, and of course there are also a lot of rituals in life that are dictated by this 260-day sacred round. Uh, calendar. So within Mayan culture, you have these priests. These are these are the guys that are that are tasked with uh, with taking care of upkeep of the calendar as well as astronomy. So they're calculating time. Uh, they're they're figuring out when festivals should occur, when ceremonies are occurring, uh, certain fateful days and seasons. They're divining the future. Uh, they're they're trying to figure out the cures for diseases. They're writing about it all and they're keeping track of the various genealogies. So in a sense, they are. They're the keepers of time. They're concerned with Mayan time and uh, and the Mayan people's place in the universe. Yeah, and obviously to the to the Maya, astronomical events had real significance. Like th- mm-hmm. they might uh, believe that an astronomical portent could give them real information about what would happen to them. You know, like it could uh, it could bring something bad that would be dangerous or it could bring a good omen. So you actually really wanted to be able to predict and understand astronomical events. And, of course, the Maya weren't, weren't the only ones who had beliefs like this. This is very common all around the world. Like the ancient Chinese were very concerned with uh, being able to predict eclipses even uh the you know the antikythera mechanism oh yes this is sometimes referred to as the world's first computer or like the oldest astronomical calculator in existence it's a mechanical computer that's you know uh, i think more than 2000 years old mm-hmm. that was discovered in a shipwreck in the mediterranean uh off the coast i believe of the the island antikythera Mm-hmm. And so they bring this thing up, and people have been studying it and putting together reconstructions of it. And what the people who have studied this mechanism uh, decided is that, oh, th- yeah, so this was an ancient astronomical calculator that if you wound the gears, it would tell you the placement of different uh, celestial objects, and it would predict eclipses. So th- the ancient Greeks or whoever invented this 
amazingly advanced mechanism for the time, were also very concerned with being able to know when it was an eclipse going to happen. So we're going to come back and discuss uh, the human significance of eclipse uh, more in a few minutes. But first, we really need to break down the basic science of the eclipse, the the basic uh, celestial mechanics uh, that are in play here. Okay, Robert, tell me a word that's hard to pronounce. Oh, well, you know, I can can probably stumble over any number of difficult words to pronounce. But uh, the one in question here is zizigi, uh, which is... Zizigi. Zizigi, which is... S-Y-Z-Y-G-Y, um, which is... Uh, <laughs> it's like they were playing a joke on you. Yeah, I mean, and I, it only just makes me think of Ziggy, the uh, cartoon character. Yeah. Um, but, but, you know, it comes from... Or Ziggy uh, Stardust. Or Ziggy Stardust. It's, why am I going to Ziggy, the cartoon character, instead of <laughs> Bowie? I don't know. Um, but it, it's, uh, it comes from uh, from the Greek, um, Zizyogos, uh, which uh, means yoke together. Uh, because ultimately we are talking about... Uh, about convergence here, right? Yeah. So every eclipse is a zizigi, but not every zizigi is an eclipse. So when, when a zizigi occurs with celestial bodies, we're talking about a nearly straight line configuration of three celestial bodies. In this case, we're talking about uh, uh, configurations that involve the sun, moon, and the earth lining up within a gravitation, gravitational system. It also refers uh, to when the sun and the moon are in conjunction such as a new moon or in opposition, a full moon. So those are examples. Those, those, a full moon is a zizigi, but obviously a full moon is not necessarily an eclipse. Okay. Uh, but you need a full moon for a lunar eclipse, but more on that later. Right, yeah. Okay, so I get that. So zizigi, zizigi. Yes. <laughs> it's from the Greek. Where does the word eclipse come from? Well, it, with eclipse, we have to go back to the Greek as well, back to uh, eclipsis uh, from uh, eclipian, which means to omit, fail, Suffer, etc. Uh, <laughs> Man, see, but this kind that's of dire. I mean, it kind of drives home the fact that throughout human history, like this is how we view eclipse. It is a thing of uh, of, of dire omen. Totally. Well, uh, okay. Let's look at uh, how lunar eclipses work first, and then we can turn to solar eclipses. Okay. So, pop quiz: which is which? We, you know that one, <laughs> you know that one is the Earth blocking light from reflecting off the moon, mm-hmm. and the other is the moon blocking the direct light from the sun that we receive on Earth. But which is which? Oh, I mean, so you're basically you're, for a solar eclipse, a solar eclipse to occur, the moon has to be in the way. Right. So for mm-hmm. a solar eclipse, the easy way to remember is that you're naming the object that's being obscured. Okay. So for a solar eclipse, that's blocking the light from the sun. The lunar eclipse is blocking the reflected light from the moon. Okay. Uh, so the lunar eclipse happens. It's actually, in the most basic terms, really simple. It's when the moon passes into the shadow of Earth. Uh, and when we describe these, it'll probably really help if you, we'll try to do our best, but if you look at a picture, this is inherently kind of a geometrical or visual phenomenon. You can only say so much with words. Um, but if you picture the Earth orbiting the sun and then the moon orbiting the Earth, every now and then the orbits line up so that the moon is directly behind the Earth with respect to the sun. And, of course, the light we see from the moon doesn't come from the moon. It's reflected from the sun. So if you block the light, you know, with the Earth's shadow, you're going to not see much light reflected from the moon, or you're going to see maybe some strange colors. So it's like standing in front of a movie projection camera facing the screen and 
you're suddenly asking yourself, where did the movie go? Well, the movie's on your back now because yeah. you're standing in front of the rejector. That's a good analogy. Uh, yeah, okay, so the Earth, uh, it, there there are two cone-shaped shadows that come off of the Earth. And one is sort of the, the outward-spreading one, and one is sort of the inward-focusing one. The outward-spreading one is known as the uh, penumbra. That's the more diffuse shadow. So that's kind of a, a faint shadow. And you've probably seen you know, yourself in various scenarios that you're actually casting sort of more than one shadow, kind of a faint, bigger shadow, and then a smaller, more concentrated shadow. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, of course, the, the middle-focused inner shadow is the umbra, and that's going to be the very dark area that the Earth is blocking out uh, a, a big majority of the sun's light. The penumbra encases the umbra. So the penumbra is wide, the umbra is small in the middle of that. It's a little bullseye there uh, in the umbra. Because a lunar eclipse can only happen when the moon is behind the Earth, that means that a lunar eclipse also only happens during a full moon. A full moon is when the you know the moon is behind the Earth, reflecting its full face to the Earth. It's mm-hmm. it's not getting a uh, uh, partially out of view. But the moon orbits the Earth all the time, like it makes a, a full circle. Roughly every month, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so why don't we see a lunar eclipse every full moon? Why don't we see a lunar eclipse every time the moon is on the opposite side of the Earth? So you can imagine the Earth and the sun together on what's called an ecliptic plane. They're sort of like sitting on a flat surface together. Right. And you imagine that's a flat surface. And the moon actually does not orbit the Earth on exactly that same plane. Okay. It's not flat with the Sun and the Earth. It's at a five-degree uh, angle from that orbit. So if you can imagine this, and it probably, again, will help if you look at a picture, uh, the Earth's orbiting the Sun on a flat plane, and then the uh, Moon is orbiting the Earth slightly diagonally. So every now and then, it is just lined up on the the sort of up-and-down Y-axis with where the Sun and the Earth are, and other times, it's above or below. Okay, so the rotation of the Earth is like a, a, a brimmed hat that's just yeah. on perfectly, whereas the Moon's rotation is a cocked hat. Yeah, that's exactly right. So those places where the moon crosses the ecliptic plane of the, of the sun and the earth, those are called nodes, and that's where it's lined up correctly to be caught right in the middle of, of the possible eclipse shadow that's being cast by the earth. When those orbits line up perfectly like that is when you're going to see a, uh, a lunar eclipse. It's when the moon is at just the right Y coordinate on this graph. So remember those two different shadows I talked about. You have the, uh, the, the, the umbra and the penumbra. And the penumbra, the big shadow, when the moon passes into that shadow, sometimes you will get like a, a penumbral lunar eclipse. And that can be difficult to see, right? Because mm-hmm. th- that shadow isn't so uh, so dense. It's not going to block out as much light. And then you can also get a partial lunar eclipse where you know only part of the moon is blocked out by the shadow. The, the really impressive one you want to see is the total lunar eclipse where it's just right to pass into the umbra, you know, that deep center shadow. Mm-hmm. And that's where the magic happens. <laughs> Uh, And so uh, lunar eclipses are pretty rare. On average, they can happen about three times a year, though you can have a year where you don't have any eclipses, any lunar eclipses at all. Um, And then about a third of these are the the penumbral ones that are harder to see. Cool. And that brings us to solar eclipses. And again, it it comes down to three 
bodies. You know, again, sort of the uh, projector, something in the way of the projector in the screen. Right. Uh, but in this case, uh, a solar eclipse is occurring when the moon passes in a direct line between the Earth uh, and the sun. So we're the screen as opposed to the individual standing in front of the screen in my projector analogy here. Mm-hmm. And solar eclipses are only possible during the new moon phase. Uh, this is when the moon essentially plays monkey in the middle yeah, between when, the sun and earth. When you normally wouldn't see it. Right. So what happens here is uh, the moon's shadow travels over the Earth's surface and blocks out the sun's light uh, as seen from Earth. Again, it all comes down to the observer. Uh, because the moon's uh, the moon orbits the Earth at an angle, up, as we already discussed, approximately five degrees uh, tilted, uh, the moon crosses the Earth's orbital plane only twice a year. And uh, these teen- times are called eclipse seasons because they are the only times when eclipses can occur. So for an eclipse to take place, the moon must be in just the correct phase during an eclipse season, uh, and then that's when the solar eclipse occurs. The condition makes this extremely rare. Now, the moon's shadow, as we already mentioned, you have the central umbra and then the outer penumbra. Uh, Depending on which part of the shadow passes over you, you'll see one of three different types of solar eclipses, because as you've you've probably noted, if you've done any kind of reading uh, online where you're like, when's the next eclipse occurring? How am I going to see a solar eclipse? Yeah, solar eclipse depends on where you are. Yeah, it depends greatly on where you are. Uh, I mean, I'm already looking ahead to the next one, and I'm thinking, all right, how far do I have to drive? I think I'd have to drive to Kentucky to really get a good view of it, and and I'm, and I'm already thinking about my eclipse tourism. <laughs> because, yeah, you could get a total uh, uh, solar eclipse, and clearly this is the one you want to drive for. The entire central portion of the sun is blocked out. This is your big, yeah, iconic, oh, my God, the world is ending eclipse, right? But then there's the partial eclipse where only part of the sun's surface is blocked out. Uh, and then there's uh, an annular, and this is when only a small ring-like sliver of light uh, is seen from the sun's disk. Yeah, you can you can actually observe the sun's corona, the yeah. sort of like a plasma halo of the sun around the outside of the black disk. Yeah, which is also pretty, oh my God, the world is going to end. Yeah. Um, and that's a solar eclipse. That's how that works. Yeah, we did our best with words again. Look at a picture. Yeah, and also I'm going to make sure to link out to our How Stuff Works articles on the landing page for this episode. We have an article about solar eclipses, and we have an, uh, an article about lunar eclipses. Both of those have illustrations that will really help you get a better grasp on what's happening here, as well as more in-depth explanations. Right, uh, and we're eventually going to get back to what eclipses mean to us in a kind of like a dark and magical way, but... Mm-hmm. Eclipses also do have scientific significance, and I think we should uh, examine those claims, both the real scientific significance and the ones that have been maybe proposed but not quite validated. Yeah, indeed, and some that you might not even think about. Like, I had not really thought about uh, the effect of a solar eclipse on terrestrial wind. Wind. Yeah, which, of course, makes perfect sense, right, because the the sun and its effect on the Earth is uh, doing a lot of the work in uh, in stirring our uh, our atmosphere into the weathered patterns that we perceive. Yeah, I mean, a, a lot of what wind is is uh, exchanging gas from one place to another because of heat differentials. And when you block out the sun, obviously you're, you're creating a kind of disturbance in the normal uh, solar radiation levels you're getting in a certain area. Indeed. And uh, in 2012, a study from the University of Reading uh, looked into this uh, and found that solar eclipses uh, do, in fact... Uh, slow the wind down, and make it change directions. This is a team of scientists led by Dr. Suzanne Gray, and they compared hourly measurements of wind speed and direction from 121 weather stations across southern England during the August 1999 total solar eclipse. 
Then they compared these to a high-resolution weather forecast model uh, that did not account for a solar eclipse. So every what they found is that everything lined up on these two different um, um, accounts the the model that the computer model that does not have an eclipse and then reality which has an eclipse everything <laughs> lines up right until you get to the eclipse point uh, so they got to see uh, what the weather would have been like without the eclipse occurring uh, at that divergent point and these were the results they found that average wind speed across a cloud free region over southern england dropped by 0.7 meters per second and that the wind's direction turned uh, counterclockwise by an average of 17 degrees so effectively the eclipse was causing the winds to become more easterly and temperatures also fell by about 1 degree celsius oh so did they know the reason why it was changing the weather was it what i was saying earlier about changing the temperature and solar radiation or did it have more to do with gravity from the sun and the moon? Well, I mean, temp- temperatures fall when there's no sunlight, obviously, as yeah. we see in our regular play of night and day. So so that was expected. Wind slow when atmosphere um, close to the ground cool, so yeah. that was to be expected. But the changes in wind direction were uh, a bit of a surprise. Huh. I wonder what could cause that. Well, I mean, I, a lot of it just comes down to you know, just the complexity of, of, of weather uh, models, you know, right. and, uh, and just how many different factors are playing into uh, wind speed and direction. Right. Butterfly eats the sun in New York. You get rain instead of... I mean, exactly. <laughs> that's, that's, we get the butterfly effect. We get the, the idea of chaos theory, and that stems out of our attempts to forecast w- weather in this in- entirely complex system. Uh, here's one I've heard. Okay. I remember reading somewhere that apparently animals go nuts during an eclipse. Now, is this true or is this a bunch of bunk? I believe this is a bunch of bunk based on the research that I was looking at. Um, basically, across the board, there's there's no some there's no uh, you know um, preternatural response by animals to eclipse. Uh, they simply tend to react to the darkness as if it were occurring during a typical cycle. Uh, so, for instance, scientists have observed uh, this in the vertical migration of uh, zooplankton in the ocean due to lunar eclipses, uh, as well as, I mean, countless higher animals when it comes to solar eclipses, because, of course, that's the more drastic change. Uh, uh, that, that's weird. I mean, intuitively, I would think it would make a big difference. Like if, uh, you know, animals have circadian rhythms mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, rhythms that are based on the cycle of night and day and that are tied to all kinds of biological processes, not just sleep and wake, but lots of things in your body. Mm-hmm. Um, I would think if, if the darkness comes before you're expecting it, that would throw you all out of whack. Well, uh, basically, I mean, it comes down to you have daytime mode and nighttime mode, right? And if it seems like suddenly it's getting dark, well, it's time to shift into nighttime mode. Huh. And that's that's pretty much what um, a lot of the, uh, the the research out there has shown, that, that roughly speaking, uh, diurnal animals react as though night were approaching, uh, as demonstrated in uh, you know expedited uh, roosting and bedding behavior. And in contrast, animals that are normally active at night, nocturnal you know, animals like bats and, and whatnot, uh, they may show the reverse pattern. So they're emerging into the open as if the, as the sky darkens during an eclipse. So, yeah, there's not, there's not animals going crazy in the streets. They're not, you know, wolves are not howling out of madness. It's just a, a, a gentle shift into sort of early nighttime. And then, oops, it's not nighttime after all. Go back to your regularly scheduled program. Here's something I don't know if I've ever seen addressed in the werewolf literature. Okay. 
what happens during a lunar eclipse. So let's say you're a werewolf. Your okay. transformation is triggered by the appearance of the full moon. Mm-hmm. So full moon's out, but suddenly it passes into the umbra, and you, you've not got a full moon anymore, at least not got a normal full moon. You've got an eclipsed full moon. What happens to your body? I would think that wolf mode is canceled at that point. Yeah? I would think... You just revert back to a naked human in the woods? Yeah, I would think so. I mean, maybe even more naked than normal, like no body hair. (laughs) You would be whatever whatever is on the other side of human from the werewolf, like a... Almost like a, a werehuman... A werehuman plus. That would be my, my, my guess on you, that. You turn into a, into a, one of those, uh, dog robots, you know, yeah. the, the puppy bots. But you know, you've hit, of course, on an important, uh, question here, because we're talking about how eclipses affect animals. And of course, the human animal, like that's, that's where we see most of the more impressive effects. Now yeah. we don't turn into <laughs> werewolves, obviously, because, of course, an eclipse has a huge impact on the way we uh, perceive uh, uh, the universe, how we perceive life on Earth and what it means. Yeah, it's those portents we were talking about earlier. I mean, we are the animals that go crazy when a solar eclipse happens yeah. or a lunar eclipse sometimes. Indeed, we, uh, we, we are the animals that go crazy. I don't know if you've ever seen like a video of a large crowd gathered to view a solar eclipse. Sometimes there's just like sudden screaming and people, it, it's it's bizarre. Yeah. I mean, I would be very impressed to see a lunar eclipse. I don't think I've ever actually watched one, maybe when I was a little kid or something. I don't know. Um, but I wouldn't scream, I don't think. You don't think, but how, you know, how can you be for certain? I mean, I've never seen, I don't <laughs> think I've ever, and I've never seen a, a solar or lunar eclipse myself, not the full, you know, lunar eclipse, sort of the full solar eclipse. So, you know, I think I would behave calmly, but maybe I would just really mark out for it. Now we'll talk more about uh, religion and myth here in a bit after the after an upcoming break. But um, according to at least one historical account, uh, to Gre- according to a Greek historian Herodotus, and only according to him, keep that in mind, Thales of Miletus predicted an eclipse uh, that occurred during the sixth year of war between the Medeans and the Lydians, and allegedly this eclipse resulted in a complete ceasefire. Um, so the, the eclipse occurs, war has been raging for years and years and years, and then the eclipse occurs and everyone puts down their weapons and they get serious about talking peace. <laughs> um, did it happen? I don't know. This is only Herodotus gives us this account. Uh, and if it occurred, we're probably talking about an eclipse on May 28th, 585, uh, as, a, as this is when a total a solar eclipse was visible in the Aegean and Asia Minor region. But there were no, there was no mention of werewolves in, uh, okay. in his account either. But then sometimes the uh, the the effects and the ramifications of eclipse go beyond life here on Earth. Uh, they go into our our understanding of how the universe itself works. Yeah, this is great. Uh, there have actually been examples of people using eclipses as a way to devise an experiment that you couldn't otherwise perform. So, like on Earth, we don't have a lot of options for performing experiments that involve incredible amounts of mass or energy. Like now we, you know, these days we can build like hadron colliders and stuff mm-hmm. to uh, generate a huge amount of energy in a controlled area, but we didn't always have stuff like that and we still can't generate, you know, enough mass to simulate like the mass of a star or the mass of a planet or something like that. We can only harness so much. But there are very clever ways to use quantities like, for example, the mass of the sun to experimentally verify predictions based on new theories. So I want to take us to 1919 when we had this wonderful new theory from 
my old friend Alfred Einstein, uh, 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 Albert Einstein, I believe he was called. Uh, but his his theory was theory of uh, general relativity. So the idea here is that gravity is actually the curvature of what Einstein called space-time. That that space and time were sort of part of the same general four-dimensional fabric of the universe, and that gravity was actually uh, the effect of seeing that fabric warped or distorted or bent by a large piece of mass. But how could you test that? Yeah, because you're basically saying, Einstein's basically saying, a sufficiently massive object is going to uh, bend light. Yeah, like you could observe it. You, you could observe the bend in space-time by seeing how the trajectory of a beam of light changes as it goes around a really massive object, but you can't put the sun in a lab. Yeah, it's like you would need to get you would need to say, okay, Einstein, go get a sun-sized object, get a yeah. bowling ball about that size, get a flashlight, and let's watch the light curve. Right, but you know, one thing you could do is try to watch what happens when a star passes behind the sun. Ah. You could look out toward the sun and see, hey, as the light passing the sun comes toward us, does it get bent an amount by the gravity of the sun that would be uh, that would be a number corresponding to Einstein's theory of relativity? And that would be great if you could check it out, but there's a problem. The sun's too bright. Ah. Like you can't see the light from the stars behind it. At least you certainly couldn't at the time. I'm not sure if we could now, but... There might be a way around that. You could look for how the sun bends light coming from stars behind it during a solar eclipse. Huh. And that's the solution. So Sir Frank Watson Dyson, an astronomer royal of Britain, conceived this experiment, and then it was carried out by a Sir Arthur Eddington. But what they did was they they plotted out the course of an upcoming solar eclipse and then they sent teams to a couple of locations one of them was an island off the west coast of africa called uh, principe i believe and then the other team i think was sent to brazil and they were supposed to measure what happened when the solar eclipse happened just to look for that light coming from the star that was passing behind the sun to see if it bent at just the right amount to experimentally verify einstein's theory of relativity and it did which, of course, made Einstein an overnight sensation. So we see a case of the eclipse being the, the perfect scenario in which to test out yeah. a theory regarding uh, uh, mass and the bending of light. Right. And and at the time, there was just like no other way we could have tested this. Yeah, you can't build a model uh, in, in which to construct it. You have to depend on the model that is reality. Of course, the experimenters were very lucky that they had uh, like clear weather and stuff when that happened. Yeah, I mean that's why they sent out two experiments, like one, yeah. uh, two, two teams to two different locations. Because what if one was cloudy, right? You needed a failsafe. Yeah. What if they both been cloudy? Oh, well, what a mess. Yeah. Imagine picking up the check for that experiment. None of us would know who Einstein was. <laughs> All right, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about eclipse mythology. We're not going to do an exhaustive uh, mention of everything because every culture has some sort of cool uh, eclipse myth. But we'll do some highlights and then uh, talk a little more uh, celestial mechanics before we close it out. All right, we're back. So... When you're talking about eclipse and mythology and folklore, 
you do see the reemerging trend of disorder and chaos. Right. It's like we were talking about earlier, where the sort of rhythm of night and day is about as basic as it gets for a biological organism. Like yeah. disturbing that cycle is a. Uh, I think I called it perverse, and I'm going to stick with that. It, it is a perversion of what seems to be biologically necessary. Yeah, I mean, you can you can basically root most of the the major themes in mythology and folklore down to the the basic rhythms of life. There's night and day. There's life and death. Yeah. There's birth. There's disease. And uh, the cycles of the seasons. Yeah, the cycles of the seasons. Uh, and so you end up personifying these movements and defining features of life. And then, of course, those all those gods end up having their own little personal dramas, their own their own offspring, their own parental issues, and you end up just filling up the entire pantheon and then uh, and then driving stories out of each one. So, yeah, we know that the ancient Chinese astronomers were very concerned with being able to predict eclipses. Like, what were some ancient Chinese beliefs about the eclipse? Well, well uh, one uh, that certainly rises to the surface is just the, uh, the, the basic belief that the eclipse occurred when a legendary celestial dragon devoured the sun or the moon. Uh, and it was actually tradition in ancient China to bang drums and pots and make loud noises during the eclipse to frighten away the dragon. And this, uh, the tradition of this uh, actually carried on into the 19th century when the Chinese Navy would fire cannons during a lunar uh, eclipse. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Uh, it, you know, it, it comes back to what you're talking about, like people, you know, making a lot of noise, sort of freaking out and getting excited during uh, one of these, uh, these, uh, it, it, these eclipse events. Uh, so you can sort of see see this tradition as an example of that, where it's just it's a time to make a lot of noise, get excited about what's happening, and 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 to varying de- degrees apply this mythical uh, context. And uh, you know, as, as far as records of eclipses go in China, uh, they date back at least to uh, 1600 BCE. Uh, we see that uh, by looking at oracle bones from the Shang dynasty. Wow. Another really interesting one is the role eclipses played in sort of the royal mythology of ancient Assyria. So if you look to Assyria in the uh, the first millennium BCE, there was a type of lunar eclipse that was actually considered a bad omen for the reigning king at the time. So it's like, oh, you see this particular type of lunar eclipse and you know... The, the gods have it in for the king. The king's going to die. That's bad for your political standing. That's bad for the Pope. Certainly bad for the king. Yeah. <laughs> so, so what do you do? I mean, well, so you could uh, come up with some kind of like just standard magical rituals to ward off the bad omens. But what if you're afraid that's not going to work? Hmm. Well, so basically, how do you get out of uh, cosmic trouble here? How do you get- how do you escape your fate? Yeah, as dictated by the you know the celestial objects, they know more than we do. I mean, so uh, the way they figured out to get around this was a ritual substitute king, or I, be- I believe it's pronounced Sharpui. And so what you t- what you do is you would basically create a scapegoat king uh. to absorb the 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 you know the the evil fate of the reigning king. And so you dethrone the real king, the reigning king, for like a hundred days, and you would substitute this fake king to eventually be killed in the king's place. And then once the the you know the bad omen is fulfilled, then the king, the actual king, can safely return to the throne without having to worry about his fate. Huh. 
And I understand that, like the uh, when I first started looking into it, I thought they meant that it was more of like a ritual, uh, like sacrifice of the uh, substitute king. But it sounds more and more like the substitute king, quote unquote, dies. So you can imagine some form of royal crier appearing before the people and saying, oh, the substitute king has died in his sleep, thus fulfilling the <laughs> prophecy and any death-related obligations of our returning king. Let's hear it for, for King What's-His-Name. Ashurbanipal, right? Ashurbanipal, back in Welcome office. Welcome back. Yeah, the bad omen is behind us because the substitute king absorbed it all. Yeah, that substitute king was such a bad king anyway. It's it's I wonder what it would be like to be that substitute king. Would you yeah. would you feel the pressure to really get stuff done? Like maybe if I really prove myself in my 100 days in office, I can that they'll actually keep me or is it just sort of like, well heck, they're going to kill me in 100 days. I'm just going to ride this out in the most hedonistic <laughs> did, fashion possible. <laughs> did the substitute king know? Like, did he think he, he was having the <laughs> best day ever? That's true, yeah. Is it ju- or is it just the priests and the king himself that are aware of this scenario? Yeah, I don't know. It would. I would. I wonder if there's any fiction out there that explores this trope. Uh, if so, I would love to hear about it, because yeah. it seems just perfect for exploitation. Send us that short story. Yeah. Um, Another example that uh, came to our eyes was uh, that of Apophis in uh, Egyptian uh, uh, religion, ancient Egyptian religion and mythology, and this is a moon serpent. Uh, the moon serpent that emerged from the great void at the dawn of time and now lives deep within the Nile. Um, the Nile, not only in the physical sense, but also in sort of the, the, the cosmic sense of ancient Egyptian religion. Sure. It embodies all the dark aspects of the universe. He's night and death. He storms and chaos. He conspires with Set, the god of evil. And sometimes he ensnares souls in their journey between this life and the next, engulfing them. And not, not only just like eating them, but just crushing them into the non into non-existence. Wow. Reminding me a bit of... Um, the Long Boy in Stephen King's Lissy's story. Oh, I haven't read that. What, oh, what is he? He's is basically a cosmic world serpent that lives outside of our reality, and if he eats you, it's like Lovecraftian levels of bad. Oh, that's it cool. It just crushes you into non-existence. Oh, Stephen King likes those uh, cosmic uh, world-eating serpents. He's he's great when it comes to the extra-dimensional entities, no doubt. Um, so. Of course, this cosmic uh, world serpent from Egyptian mythology, of course he wants to devour the great sun disk that lights our world, which is pulled across the sky by the god Ra in his sunboat. Uh, Ra is protected, however, by another serpent, uh, a good one, and uh, almost always escapes um, the ravenous Apophis. Uh, but sometimes he almost succeeds, and that's when we get an eclipse, but he's always made to vomit everything back up again. So in, in this, we see the, the, the you know, traditional trope of eclipse as an example of the forces of chaos and darkness and evil almost winning, but then being beaten away by the forces of order. You know, I, I feel like we still have not actually shucked this myth of, like, the monster that eats the sun, because we've got it within the past few decades with Unicron, eat, you know, eating planets. Yes, uh, Unicron, and, and we'll, we'll come back to Unicron in a minute, because he does line up rather nicely with, uh, with a particular... Um, Eclipse uh, entity from uh, Hindu religion. Let's see. I'm going to see if I can find a good YouTube clip of Unicron eating a planet. But no, Unicron, uh, Galactus, those those guys are very much in keeping with these uh, these ancient ideas of cosmic world eaters, cosmic moon and sun eaters. Uh, it it is a truly captivating idea. I mean, like um, 
it is the sun an entity that can be consumed? I mean, if it could, you you could sort of see that as like it's like the ultimate empowering agent. It's you know, it's the pill that you take that gives you ultimate power. Yeah. But it's also it's almost kind of this idea too that like this like nothing can actually eat the sun. So yeah. if you have an, an evil being or creature in your cosmology, of course it's going to try to eat the sun, but it can't carry it out, and then right. it just falls back to earth. It falls back to hell or what have you. Now we're kind of jumping around in time a little bit, but um, just to just to make sure we hit at least one werewolf uh, example, there is a werewolf from the folkloric traditions of Russia and Belarus, uh, and this is an individual named Veseslav. Uh, the Belarusian werewolf. Oh, so now are we actually going to find out what happens to a werewolf during the eclipse? Uh, no, sadly <laughs> not. But no. we'll see how an eclipse factors into the creation of a werewolf. Okay. The idea here is that his mother was violated by a serpent. And as a result, uh, Veseslav was born during a solar eclipse. And so he became a mighty warrior in life, kind of a warrior magician, a warrior sorcerer, mm-hmm. uh, battle wizard, if you will. Uh, but he also... Um, could turn into a wolf. He, he was essentially a werewolf and could and could take on this nocturnal lupine form. Now, he's based on a real guy, based on the real life Vasislav of Polotsk, also known as Vasislav the Sorcerer, Vasislav the Seer, really lived from 1039 to 1101 and is the most famous ruler of the Polotsk and briefly Grand Prince of Kiev from 1068 to 1069. Um, this more mythic, uh, lycanthropic version of him stems from the 12th century Slavic epic, The Tale of Igor's Campaign. And as far as I know, nothing in there tells us what happens uh, to Vasislav <laughs> during uh, a lunar eclipse. Man, that would be really cool to be immortalized in, like, epic poetry and turned into a werewolf. Yeah, he kind of, we were talking about this earlier. He kind of, uh, he kind of reminds us of uh, of the Starks, right? Right. He's like Rob Stark. Yeah. You know, like, there are legend. He, he's actually just a sort of warrior king, but uh, there are legends surrounding him. Oh, he can turn into a wolf in yeah. the full moon. And then, of course, there's throat ripping. And throat ripping, yeah. That's going to happen. Yeah. It's a bloody time. Delicious bloody time. viscera. And this brings us to one of my favorite. And again, you know, we're, we're continually to see this trope of the, the, the moon or sun-consuming entity. Uh, this brings us to the Hindu god Rahu, or a Fra Rahu, as he's known in Thailand. Uh, and he has just a fabulous story. But he's easily my favorite of all these different eclipse entities because he was once a proud Ashura, a demigod of immense power and hunger. But, you know, he's a bit flawed. He's a little too ambitious. He, he wants immortality because... Um, uh, you know, within the, this particular cosmology, demigods are just another realm in the wheel of samsara. So demigods may be super powerful and they may live a long, long time compared to human lives, but they're ultimately going to die. Right. So Rahu drinks the divine nectar that's going to give him immortality. Uh, but before the uh, this uh, gulp full of this magical liquid could pass his throat, all-powerful Vishnu jumps in and decapitates him for the transgression. Okay, so he cuts his head off, severing the esophagus before it trickles down the esophagus. Right, before it can actually go all the way down. So it just cuts it off there. Uh, oh, man, that's such a bummer. Like, how low would it have to get to have an effect? Do you have to fully digest it? Um, I, I think it, the idea is kind of like a, an Achilles kind of a situation. Yeah. You know, Achilles is only as powerful as how far he's dipped in the water. Mm-hmm. So, you know, his heel didn't make it in, so the heel was vulnerable. Yeah. So cut him off before the, the, the liquid could pass into the body. So the body's gone, but the head, the head has the power. So the idea here is that the power of the nectar makes the disembodied head of Rahu immortal. Oh, man. <laughs> and um, 
And so this cleaved and fallen God continues to seek his revenge on the two planetary deities who ratted him out to Vishnu, and that's the sun and the moon. Mm. So as such, ravenous Rahu regularly ascends into the sky and attempts to swallow the sun or the moon. But since he's disembodied, his meal falls back out again. So he succeeds. He eats that moon. He eats the sun, but he has no body. He's just a, a head with this, some neck flesh. So he swallows it and comes right back out the next step. That is genius. Yeah. Like, that is an awesome myth. Now, in, in Thailand, uh, he's he's seen as more cut off at the stomach, however, as opposed to just a head. So uh, he's more of just a half god instead of, uh, instead of just a head of a god in those motifs. Now, where this gets interesting, uh, an area of this myth that I really find fascinating, is that you see this uh, this exchange between science and myth regarding Rahu and uh, and his status. So, there's always been less conflict between science and Hinduism uh, due to a variety of reasons. But you could you you can hone in on distinct linguistic differences between uh, teleological and causative whys. Mm. Uh, so, just the language of talking about why something happens is there's the why is in like what was the actual cause of this event, and then there's the why in the sense of what is its reason from a cosmological standpoint? Oh, it sounds almost like a uh, parallel between causality and synchronicity. Yeah, yeah, in a sense, because it's it's kind of like if I say, "Why did I get sick?" You could say, "Well, the the, the reason you were sick is because you ate uh, that food at that restaurant last night that was yeah. a little off." It but then had E. coli in it. Yeah. yeah, and then then there's the why that you would ask, like, "Why, God, am I allowed to get sick on this most important day of my life when I have this job interview right. and my marriage on the well, same afternoon?" It's to humble you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So the the idea here is that in in uh, in English, especially. It, there's there's more room for confusion here between your whys. Whereas in Hinduism, they're depending on linguistic models that have a clear distinction between those whys. I think that's really interesting. Yeah. Um, any way you shake it, though, we do see this interesting interplay between Rahu and uh, astronomy of the time, because uh, Indian astronomy was pretty advanced. Uh, and his scientist, uh, Rajesh Koshar, uh, discusses in his paper, Rahu and Ketu in Mythological and Astromological Context, um, treatments of the disembodied Rahu actually evolved with the scientific knowledge of the time. Huh. Yeah. So go back 2,000 years, and uh, Indian astronomers divided the cosmos into seven geocentric planets, or graha, and then they set aside uh, you know, particularly disastrous phenomena like uh, meteors, comets, and eclipses, and they called those utpada. So on one hand, you had uh, uh, cyclical order, the graha, the planets, and then you had um, just chaos and, and dire omen in the forms of yeah. utpada. But of course, as we know now, eclipses follow a pattern. We can predict them. We can prove it out. Right. They're actually more in line with order than in chaos. Uh, but it's not necessarily easy to see that pattern. It's a right. pattern that you might only notice after you've collected multiple generations worth of data. Yeah, yeah. It took it took a while before someone realized that. And in 499 CE, uh, the great Indian mathematician astronomer Ari Bahada introduced a mathematical theory of eclipses that, that really pretty much nailed it. Uh, just our two lunar nodes, Earth shadows, and moon shadows. So there are no demons required. Okay. But, of course, that means that uh, that Rahu needs a promotion, along with his headless body that ends up being known as Ketu. So instead of them being chaotic uh, Utpada, they are upgraded to ordered Graha. So, okay. So while they're not actually considered planets, they don't get like full planetary status because, of course, it, they're not planets. It's just uh, you know the way things are lining up. They took on the distinction of being shadow planets. 
so that they they graduated from becoming sort of like intruders on the cosmic plane to uh more like a shadowy residence. Yeah, the yeah. Cosmic plane. Yeah, they were really seen as more. They said, "Hey, we can't really classify the eclipse as just pure pure chaos because clearly there's a pattern. Clearly, it's part of the ordered system of our planets." And they realized that this even in 499. I'm sensing more parallels with Unicron. I mean, indeed, you get when you look at Unicron, especially Unicron and Rahu are basically the same entity, right down to just being disembodied heads, right? Because <laughs> what did uh, Unicron do in the 86 Transformers movie tried to uh, eat the Earth, right? Transformers stopped him, and he's just reduced to a head. Wow. Yeah. So I've I've looked into it. I found no clear example where someone says, yeah, we based a Unicron on um, on a Hindu god or Hindu uh, entity. Uh, but it seems there's just too much coincidence there to ignore. Uh, but, of course, it's not just the ancient religious cosmology that assigns uh, true like magical significance to eclipses mm-hmm. uh, th- there are still religious movements today that are looking for the religious significance of eclipses uh, one example that i remember hearing about is the so-called blood moon prophecy that's popular in some circles of evangelical christianity these days yeah, the idea here is that it revolves around a, a tetrid series of lunar eclipses. That's four lunar eclipses within within a cycle. Uh, you know, three is rare enough, but here you would have you would have four showing up in a, in a row, and it only occurs a few times within a century. For example, um, in this century, it occurred in two thousand three, two thousand four, two thousand fourteen, and uh, a few more times before the turn of the next century. So it's a, a rare enough account that you'll end up uh, you know hitting the jackpot with four. Okay, but like, why is this popular right now? <laughs> well, uh, it all comes down to a 2013 book, Four Blood Moons, Something is About to Change. Or, <laughs> let me say, Four Blood Moons, colon, Something is About to Change. That sounds like a, like a great, like, rock album title. Yeah. yeah well, it did not come from rock and roll, though it came from, uh, the pastor of the Cornerstone Megachurch in San Antonio, Texas, John Hagee. Uh, oh, I know John Hagee. You do? Okay. Yeah. Not you, personally. But yeah, you see his picture. You look him up, you'll go, oh, that guy from. Yeah. I've seen, I've seen him preaching on television. Okay. You don't know him personally? No. Okay. Uh, the, so Hagee suggests that there's a link between a new total lunar eclipse, a tetrad, and the biblical prophecy about the end times. Okay. So it's certainly a case, yes, that we're still looking to the movements of, uh, of the sun and moon. We're still looking at, at the eclipse. And even with all of our modern scientific uh, uh, understanding of what's actually happening, if we're trying to understand like this wider sense of not only why is that are things occurring in the universe in that causative sense but also in the the grander uh, magical sense in the meaningful sense uh, you know we can't help but look uh, to the movement of the sun and the moon and look to these uh, to these anomalies that occur yeah I think there's something very interesting about this historical progression of us seeing eclipses originally as sort of like a strange, unpredictable events that that violated our our sense of patterns, and then finally coming to understand them as part of larger and longer patterns. It's sort of a microcosm of the whole progression of science in a way, Mm -hmm. like taking events that seem to represent chaos and disorder and then fitting them into the system of order that you finally come to understand. 
And, of course, this uh, analysis of Eclipse and obsession with Eclipse continues on into uh, uh, present-day fiction or fiction of the the modern era. Uh, For instance, um, Asimov's Nightfall, uh, which exists, of course, is both a short story and there's a full novel version that he did with uh, Robert Silverberg. Oh, yeah? Yeah, but it concerns a fictional planet. Uh, it's called Lagash in the uh, short story and Kalgash in the novel. And this uh, fictional planet, very much like Earth for the most part, you know, like a sci-fi Earth. You can think of it as kind of almost like a Star Trek Earth where... It's basically Earth that things, uh, there are a few factors at play that make it interesting. Right, you've got some uh, wrinkles on your head or something. Yeah, so it's kind of like that. Except the wrinkles here uh, are that the the, uh, the planet has six suns, which keep the planet illuminated in varying levels of daylight <laughs> all the time. That sounds like too many suns. It does sound like too many suns, but uh, the result is that there's no total darkness on the planet. And so, on one hand... The idea of there being total darkness just seems like no one can buy it. For the most part, no one can buy that. They're like, how would that even work? Like, creatures depend on light. Mm-hmm. If there were periods of darkness, that it would just be devastating. But it also means that no one has ever seen the stars. Wow. And so, but, but then they're, when they start looking back, uh, through, uh, through uh, historical accounts and, uh, and some individuals are, are, you know, trying to figure out how celestial mechanics work, there's a belief that every 2,000 years or so, darkness comes uh, to the planet of uh, of Lagash or Kalgash, and with it falls whole civilizations. You know, I can almost see that kind of thing in that scenario being a self fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it 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 does. It is. It's almost kind of uh, like the idea of the eclipse blown up. Yeah. Or, or and and also kind of reversed. That the the world is always uh, bathed in in varying levels of light, and but then every two thousand years there is a night into a world that has never known night. Would it just be madness? Would it be the it, would it be the banging in the streets times a thousand? Like how would we deal with that? And that's what uh, what's what Asimov's novel explores. Or on a much simpler uh, level, you can look at Mark Twain's uh, A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, in which a time-traveling Yankee saves his life in the Middle Ages by remembering the occurrence of an eclipse and claiming to have caused it. Oh, well, I mean, you could tie that into events in, in real history, actually, where you know people have obviously been able to use their knowledge of the ordered uh, sequence of eclipse cycles to impress people, mm-hmm. right? If you know that an eclipse is coming... And other people have no idea that eclipses are, are on a schedule, basically. You can appear to have tremendous magical power. Yeah, it's, and even today, if you work in a, you know, kind of uninformed workplace, like nobody's really reading Scientific American or anything. Right. Or the newspaper, you might be able to pull this one off still. <laughs> Wait for the next solar eclipse, go to work, and then claim to be a wizard. You'll surely get that promotion you've always wanted. Yeah. I mean, that, that's a rule. That's, a, Business 101, yeah, that, always promote a wizard. That's just solid advice right there. All right, so there you have it. <laughs> the Science of Eclipse, uh, you know, a brief study of some of the mythology surrounding uh, the, the eclipse uh, and just what it, what it means to humanity as a whole. If you would like to explore uh, more on this topic, again, check out that landing page for this episode, and you'll find that at StuffToBlowYourMind.com, along with all the other episodes we've ever recorded, along with videos, uh, blog posts, links out to social media accounts, you name it. And if you've got a story you'd like to share about an eclipse you've ever seen or uh, a fascinating eclipse mythology you've read about, please email it to us at BlowTheMind at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 